I'm Abby Kinney, and you are listening to UpZoned. Hello, everyone. Thanks for listening to another episode of UpZoned, a show where we take one big story from the news each week that touches the Strong Towns conversation, and we UpZone it. We talk about it in depth. I'm Abby Kinney, a planner in Kansas City, and joined with me today, back is Chuck Marone. <laughs> Drum roll, please. Yeah. Hey. Welcome. Reunited. Yeah. Nice to see you. It's been a really long time. I was about to just uh, kick you off the show and just bring on <laughs> someone else. That's all right. It probably worked better anyway. Um, I have to say, <laughs> no. I didn't listen to any episodes because I... <laughs> When I'm on vacation, I really try hard to disconnect. So yeah. you, you were on vacation and then I was on vacation. And so we've, yeah, it's been about a month, I think, since we've chatted. I know. Well, and, and you're about to go on book tour and I do have a little vacation coming up. So we may have some some interesting upzoned episodes in the coming weeks. <laughs> cool. I'm, I'm good with it. We'll all, we'll just keep mixing it up. Yeah. Yeah. This is the mixer season. So yeah, that's good. <laughs> well, welcome back. It's great to see you. Great to chat with you. I hope you had a wonderful vacation. It sounds like you and your family had a lot of fun. Yes. We've obviously been very fortunate in life and traveling a lot like I do for work gives me a lot of uh, travel perks. And since we didn't get to use any of those in 2020, uh, they kind of moved over to 2021 and we were able to go to Rome and Venice. So my two daughters, uh, 14 and 16, got to experience life in ancient Rome and, and the core of Rome. We were just a few blocks from the Pantheon and uh, got to experience that. And then we went to Venice. And of course, Venice is like no other city I've, I've ever been to. That was my second time there, and it was more magical every time. So it's just astounding. Well, that's a nice segue to the article that we are going to be talking about today. This was published in Streets Vlog by Gam Marisha, and it is called Seeing New York Through European Eyes Reveals Our Flaws. So the author is a former European resident and Luxembourg Mobility Commissioner now living in New York City. In the article, he basically reflects on the many differences that he has perceived between how public space, how infrastructure is used in his native continent versus North America's most city city. Uh, he starts by pointing out what New York has done really well, that he wishes European cities would copy. So talking about blanketing cities and permanent open streets, many of which in New York were established during the pandemic and in his opinion have been done very well. His other observations are less positive, one of them being that despite 80% of New Yorkers being non-drivers, a substantial amount of space is dedicated towards moving cars around, making the grid hostile to people who are walking and cycling. The author perceives New York cycling network as much more dangerous and random than the typical, more comprehensive European network. And in addition to that, street parking is largely inexpensive in New York compared with European cities, adding another layer of subsidy for cars and undermining other modes of transportation. So his big conclusion is that 
essentially pedestrian and bike networks that are not well thought out or comprehensive and complete and undermined by car space ultimately results in the primary users of these networks being young daredevils rather than a holistic cross-section of society that might include families or older people, for example. So I thought that this would be a fun article to cover for a few reasons. First of all, you have a book coming out September 8th called Confessions of a Recovering Engineer. There's a little plug there. Um, that provides a you know comprehensive analysis of the American transportation industrial complex, basically. You also got back from family trip from Europe. So I think that this is um, would be a great opportunity to kind of give us a reverse perspective, like the Chuck Marone reflection of some of the differences between Europe and American transportation systems. Um, I think that the author definitely gave a good summary of some of the differences. I think he um, will be surprised to see how bad it can be and if he goes to some other cities that aren't New York. Um, but yeah, maybe you can provide us the, since you just got back from Europe, the, the fresh perspective on maybe some of the differences. It's obviously profound. As I read this article, I kept thinking about this thing that Andres Duany said once. He talked about how here in the U.S. and, and he was he was kind of making fun of tactical urbanism, but not not the idea, more like our reaction to it. And he said something like, you know, we go out and put out a bench, and it, putting out a bench requires all of this coordination and you know approval and and fundraising and everything else. And we put out a bench and we we celebrate it and we're like, look at this accomplishment, we got this bench. <laughs> and he said, this is, you know, from a European perspective, is such a bizarre thing to celebrate because it's like, of, of course you put out benches and of course you put them in the right place and of course you lay them out right. And if, if anyone who's listened to the Strong Towns podcast in the last month know that I, I did a big thing on benches in my park, I think the thing that is profound is how the common cultural knowledge of building a place is so different between Europe and the US. It, it, it just is. And I, I, I don't think this because we're profoundly different people or culturally that much different. If you went back to Americans of the early 1900s, they would have had a, a similar cultural framework and a similar understanding of building places as Europeans did. The example that I like to use is Everybody listening to this podcast knows that if you're going to build a McDonald's or a drive through restaurant, what that looks like, we all understand. Or if you're going to build a strip mall, we all understand how you do that to be successful. You set it back from the roadway. You put a big parking lot out front. You put a massive sign. And you may not like that. I may not like that. But we all like culturally are not surprised when this happens, right? Like we all understand the typical European knows that if you're going to build a commercial venture somewhere or you're going to build a home, you build it up to the street. You square off on the street. You have a you know human-scaled enter and, 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 and nice permeable windows. You have a human-scaled sign. You There are things that are just cultural knowledge because of the place they live and how it's laid out that makes their expectations and understanding just so much different. And the things that we, you know, we celebrate a bench because, oh my gosh, look at this bench. We accomplished this thing. <laughs> to, to them, that is 
it's not an accomplishment at all. It's, it's just common sense. It's just what you do. A lot of times planners in particular, but but American, and it tends to be American elites who travel overseas. And I guess for the sense of this conversation, you can put me in, in that category who experience this and and come back and are disillusioned. They're like, why is this so magical overseas? And here it is so horrible and awful. And I, I, I see my kids have that reaction. They're like, dad, what? I don't want to go back to Brainerd. It's ugly. I don't want to go back home. It's horrible. <laughs> yeah, like this place yeah. is so magical and beautiful. <laughs> it really starts with an understanding of of what you're trying to accomplish with the space. And in Europe, it's largely about making space for people. And in the US, it is primarily about making space for automobile trips and automobile mobility. And, and that foundational understanding shapes everything about how you do design. Yeah, I think that that's exactly it. Because if you're designing places for people like you, like, what does that mean? You're, it's not even just about safety, but it's also about just making places interesting and magical and intriguing. And people pay in the United States, pay thousands of dollars to go across the pond and experience these places um, I remember when my dad went to Venice and he, he went to Europe, did a very similar trip that you did a few years ago. And when he came back, he was like very disillusioned as, you know, someone who lives in the suburbs. And he basically was like, pack your bags. We're going back. Like, what are we doing here? And I, I'm like, yeah, I don't, I don't know why we um, build our cities in a way that, that just doesn't provide a lot of interest, although maybe that will change. Uh, it's been somewhat of a hobby of mine to explore how European streets are designed using Google Earth. <laughs> it's incredible to look at the differences for just how the space between buildings and the buildings are designed and used. And I often do think that the biggest difference um, is not even necessarily about the tangible infrastructure, but it is the cultural values that are ultimately manifested in the way that we design public space not just in terms of mobility, but also uh, park spaces, spaces that where people are intended to linger. Um, that's something that we treat very differently in the U.S. as well. Let me say something depressing, and then <laughs> I think we can say something positive <laughs> after that. The depressing thing that came through to me in this article is that he's writing about the best city in the U.S. from an urban design standpoint, right? So he's saying... If, if Europe, if the cities that I came from, where, where we struggled to do things well, I mean, he says that, is like a seven or eight on the scale, New York is like a three or a four. And what that means is that Kansas City is like a one and Brainerd is like a 0.2. He is comparing what is, you know, the, the U.S. is really only major city. You know, the, New York is eight and a half million people. Chicago is like 2.5. Uh, San Francisco is like less than a million. You can get the Bay Area and you start to grow in population. But it, it New York is really the only Paris, London, Rome size city we have in the United States. He's talking about a place that has done the the type of planning where if you point it out in a 
American Play Association conference. You're like, well, we can't do that. We're not New York. You know, <laughs> only in New York could they do something that magical, that wonderful. And like true, compared to Omaha, compared to, you know, whatever, like New York is doing all this astounding stuff. It, it's it's almost like we're on a, oh, I was just going to say something really engineer geeky. It's almost like we're on a log scale. You know, we're like, the gradation from one to 10 and 10 to a hundred is, 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 it's, it's like a Richter scale. You know, when you go from Kansas city to New York, you're jumping up a gradation of 10. And when you go from New York to Amsterdam, you're jumping up a, another gradation of 10 times. But the, the gap between a Kansas city and an Amsterdam is so unfathomable. You get the, the thing that your dad has, you know, where he comes home and he's like, what the hell have I done with my life? Yeah, you like, know, like what, are, what? <laughs> he jumps to the extreme where he's like, our whole family is moving back. Like, what are we doing here? <laughs> We're moving back to the motherland. Like, what, what, <laughs> how did, how, why did we ever leave? Like, this was insane. No, and yeah, I, <laughs> on okay. a boat. <laughs> yeah, I'll share something deeply intimate. Uh, I'll try to do this in a way that's not too bad. My first trip overseas was in 2000. I was an engineer working for an engineering firm. I was kind of a young guy. They didn't know what to do with me. The next oldest guy in the firm was like a decade older than me. And, and I was like this young whippersnapper they didn't know what to do with. And I got nominated to go on a rotary trip to Italy, six weeks in Southern Italy as like a professional. And my firm, which was a small firm, they agreed to send me and to pay me while I was gone, like basically give me paid leave to do this. Huge honor. Yeah, like they they were. And I, I know that they looked at it as a retention thing. Here's a young guy, very ambitious. We can't really fulfill his ambition it, with the size of our firm and where we're at right now because he's got to get like another 10 years of experience and da, 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 da. And we got to have other people retire and what have you. But if we send him here, we'll keep him. And the reality is it did the exact opposite, right? Like I went and I'm like, my life is a fraud. <laughs> you know, like everything I've ever lived is a sham. And I like to say I had my midlife crisis at age 25 because I recognized that there was this big wide world out there that I was completely ignorant of. One of the reasons I wanted my kids to go and experience it at the age they're at, and this is their their second trip overseas, um, is because I didn't want them to have that midlife crisis. I, I wanted them to kind of know some of these things a, ahead of time. But I've seen many, many, many people who had that same experience that your dad describes, which is like, this is so different. How do we even go back to what we had? You know, how do how do I even look with joy on the, the McDonald's curb cut and think like this is somehow the peak of civilization when I've actually experienced like a crappy version of Europe city and it's like 100 degrees gradation better than what I've experienced back home. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, you know, it, the first thing I thought about when I read this article was that I can't wait until he visits other cities because when, I, when I'm thinking about how to improve a place like Kansas City, New York is kind of my benchmark as a place that has done some really interesting things because I, although I can travel to Europe on Google, I haven't been there yet. So New York is like really the the best place that I can compare it to in terms of how you would improve 
public space. So, I, you know, he has no idea how bad it, it truly gets. And, you know, I think I think the problem with beginning to undo some of these, you know, hostile environments is that there is this constant tension around the notion of reusing space on existing streets for multimodal uses. Uh, I, you know, people in American cities overvalue the ease of traffic movement because we often aren't really thinking about what we're giving up for the sake of driving with ease. In the transportation world, you know, we're breaking things down by mode of transportation, biking, walking, et cetera, driving. So ultimately, I think that a simpler way to think of public space is more around whether its components are merely a utility or if they provide some amenity value. Because an amenity is something that actually enhances quality of life. And while walking and biking networks have utility value, they're also such a great amenity um, and enhancement of public space and quality of life. I can really imagine few examples where a simple car lane really offers amenity value in terms of placemaking. So while cars have this this utility value, car lanes, you know, that they are networks that provide a utility value. We can't sacrifice all of the different amenity components that make great places um, just simply to maximize one utility. And I feel like that's what we do a lot in U.S. cities. Um, and besides, you know, traffic congestion can be a signal of vitality. And we often associate it with something bad, but but really, it's it's a it's a signal of vi- vitality, and so it's important to reconsider what we value in our public spaces here in the U.S. and recognize how we can shift that, often in very tactical and low cost ways. Um, you know, I have to think that European cities have a bit of a different process in terms of how we make those changes and how transportation funding works and design works. You know, you just write, wrote a book on how it works in the U.S., but I wonder if you have any insight about how it works because, you know, d- like, does it take a long time to make simple improvements? And a lot of cities in the U.S., you you know, you have to go go to the city commission and ask for money and go through a very long process and it has to go through departments and, you know, the engineers have to look at it and it can be very difficult to simply, you know, maybe do some curb extensions or something that could make a big difference, but is, is fairly tactical. You know, we celebrate the bench that we put out that took two years to put out. <laughs> I, I think that's a really good point. I have to think that it works differently in Europe. Yeah, particularly in Italy, I've got a little bit of insight on this. It works in ways that would be perplexing, right? Like it, in a lot of ways, it doesn't work. It, in a lot of ways, if you look at Italy in specific, it's been blessed with a certain form and a certain pattern that they've just not had the capacity or the wherewithal to screw up too badly. Really, that that's a, a lot of it is what they've been gifted and, and not blown apart. And that's why cities on the eastern part of the U.S. are generally better places than those on the western part, because there was more there there when they started to rip them apart. And it took more effort to kind of deconstruct them than it did in the Midwest where we're at or out west where there was not a lot there to begin with when we hit the automobile era. 
One of the deeply subversive things that we've done at Strong Towns and that my book does is define automobile transportation and really all transportation in terms of roads and streets. This is the where we get to the Strode thing, the Strode idea. But the idea of a road and a street is really designed to shift the way we think about transportation investments. Are you trying to build something that is a connection between places, something that provides a high-speed, low-friction kind of way to get from one place to another? That's a road. Or are you trying to build a platform for wealth creation? And that is a street. And sometimes the, 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 the more like very progressive members of our audience get mad at me, they're like, why does it have to be about building wealth? And okay, fine, you know, there's a strong correlation between places that are wealth building and places that are walkable and bikeable and high amenity. And, you know, uh, you, you can go through all the other things. But the reality is, is we make transportation investments in this country for economic development purposes. And, you know, I promised earlier when I said something doom and gloom that we would get to something optimistic. The reality is we spend a ridiculous amount of money on transportation systems that make us poorer. And we could spend much less money on transportation systems that actually built our wealth and made us wealthier and gave us more capacity to do more things if we focused on making places that were roads, that connected places, and then building a great network of streets that supported investment and wealth creation and prosperity and all of the uh, high quality of life that went along with that. And, and we can do that at every scale. We can do that in Kansas City. We can do that in New York City. We can do that in the small town of Brainerd. And we can you know, do it in every city in between with the budgets that we have. I feel like that's the optimistic part here is that we can learn lessons from Europe and we can grasp the difference but we're not going to become Europe, and we're certainly going to become Europe overnight. But to kind of paraphrase John Anderson, the, the incremental developer, we can very easily become a, a slightly less crappy version of the place we currently are with just a little bit of a mental shift in what we're trying to accomplish with a road and what we're trying to accomplish with a street. And my book delves like deeply into that. Well, and that shift... I think it's already started in the professions around around city building and also just for for people who have become um, that may not be in these kinds of professions, but they just understand these small differences that can make for a better neighborhood and their neighborhood advocates that are making these changes. So I, I think the shift towards thinking differently about public space and infrastructure has only just begun in the United States. And we have a lot of work to do to make city streets more user-friendly and that just takes time and, and it will continue into the future. I do think that it's important that public officials and, and people who are involved within cities are experiencing the infrastructure that they're building and, you know, maybe even traveling to other places and seeing how things are done differently. I've, I've heard of in one city where they actually sent their engineers over to Amsterdam to go be perplexed by, by that infrastructure so that they could come back and maybe have new eyes on their own place. And so, so I, th I do think that there's an incredible amount of value that comes from 
not only experiencing your existing infrastructure, taking staff out and making them ride in the bike lane that that was built, also potentially traveling. It doesn't have to be Europe. It could be Chicago or New York, uh, you know, Minneapolis, but going and traveling to a place where they've tried something new and thinking through opportunities to make those kinds of changes in your city. So I don't know if you've seen any of the videos that Jason Slaughter with Not Just Bikes has done. Yes, um, I have. Yeah, they've been fantastic. I've had him on the podcast and, and we've chatted a number of times now. I, I really like, I, I really love the work that he's done on Strong Towns. But if you, even if you, when you get beyond that and start to look, here's a person who is uh, from Canada, very much understands North American development pattern, has chosen to live in the Netherlands. And I think through that lens is really interpreting, in some ways he's explaining the Dutch to the Dutch in a, in a novel way. And I think that's part of his shtick. But for us over here in North America, he's really given a North American kind of lens on what are basic design principles that if you are a, a, an urban designer or an engineer in the Netherlands are just going to be second nature to you. And it, it almost takes, I'm going to say this with great deference, it, it almost takes like immature eyes to see the obvious. You know, if you're, if you're deeply embedded in it and it's like your profession and it's what you do, it just becomes like a matter of business. And it takes like an outsider who's not like indoctrinated in that way to see the novel things. And I really value that as an American, I feel like it's a, it's a very good introduction to great urban design, not coming through like an academic setting or an intellect, deeply intellectual setting or uh, a technical professional trying to explain it. Here's like a normal dude who just experiences transportation, explaining it to the rest of us in North America. They're, they're fantastic videos. Well, I, I think that's why even like for people who are quote unquote professionals, it's important to never become too embedded in the ideas that you've learned within a profession and to at least be open-minded or, or questioning like, why do you know what you know? Like, why do you perceive that to be the way it must be? You know, it's, it's important to go back and kind of untangle that as you go along and not to just kind of blindly accept that, you know, some some type of practice is is the only way to do something. Uh, so, yeah, that that's just incredibly important. So I think we'll leave it there. That's all the time we have for today. Um, but before we conclude, it is time for the down zone, which is the part of the show where we can share anything that we've been reading, anything that we've been listening to, anything that's been capturing our attention. So Chuck, it's been a while. Unless you want to share more about Europe, I'm curious what else you've been up to. I I'm going to share one thing. Uh, let me, I I've, when I go on vacation, I read fiction. It's the like twice a year I read <laughs> fiction vacation and then Christmas baking season. And so I, I went through a bunch of Grisham books, which are just kind of fun. Uh, I want to, I want to share one thing that we did, um, that I've, I've never heard of anyone else doing and I've never seen anyone else do. And even being in Venice, I've looked and I've not seen anyone else do. I came across this kayak tour of the Venetian canals. And my wife likes to kayak. My kids, when we go on vacation, we we will 
you know, try to do active things. So hiking and what have you. Um, and we signed up to do this three hour canal kayak tour. I'm thinking like, we'll meet someone in a canal. We'll go through, it'll be very like low pace pedestrian. Oh no. We took this boat out to this Island. Uh, we got in a canal and then we went across the grand canal, which is insane. Like I, I would never have kayaked there in a thousand years, but our tour guide, it was just my wife and I, and my two daughters, we were in two person kayaks. So my wife and my oldest and one and me and my youngest and the other, and then our tour guide. And he brought us right across the grand canal. It's like a boat highway. There's boats all over. The waves are really high. We got through there and we got in and we started going through um, we, we did wind up in a little bit of like the, what I would say is the more touristy parts of Venice, but we spent the bulk of our time in what you just call like the working class parts of Venice, you know, people with their, um, clothes on the clothesline over the canal and all like very authentic and being in a kayak in a canal going through was the coolest perspective I've ever had of this amazing city. And so I just want people to hear that this is a possible thing. If you're going to, if you ever go to Venice, look up like Venice kayak tour. I think there's only one place that does it. It is astounding. It is not that expensive. It is such a fun day. It is, it's the, one of the greatest things I've ever done on a vacation. And we, my kids are talking about it still. My wife is telling everybody she meets about it. And I have to say it was a ton of fun. Um, a really cool way to see Venice. <sighs> You're making me want to book some <laughs> flights. Yes, yes. I'm I'm on Google Maps right now, looking at the Grand Canal. Wow, that looks amazing. We we went so we got it in our kayaks and we start out and then he's like, "We're going to go over to that thing," and he pointed to this thing, and I look, my daughter like turned around, and looked at me, and she's like, "We can't do that. Like that's this is crazy," because. It, it was really rough water and it was really like intense. And and I'm not talking about kayak, like you sit in a nice kayak. I'm talking about like we had like the Inuit blanket thing over us to keep water from splashing in our thing. I mean, it was like very intense kayaking. And I'm like, this was supposed to be like a family tour. And now it feels like we're supposed to be expert kayakers. But once we got across the Grand Canal, which actually was not as bad as it seemed going in, we wound up crossing it three times on our trip. Uh, once we got uh, across, it was it was just dreamy. I felt like I got a tour of Venice that even locals don't do. That's how cool it was. That's so cool. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that looks like a lot of fun. That water does look pretty extreme. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but maybe I'll give it a try. Yeah, I'll, sometime like when fun. you meet, when you finally meet uh, my youngest, I want her to explain it to you because she was the one who like started crying. She's like, we can't do this. And I'm like, yeah, we'll, we'll do it. It'll be okay. And then she turns around and I'm like, oh God, I hope it's going to be okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're, you're a little nervous for yourself. Yeah. <sighs> well, that sounds like a lot of fun. Um, It's August now. So it's like 100 degrees in Kansas city. So I've actually been getting into a little bit of fiction um, I've, because I've spent so much time indoors for the past week. I actually just finished rewatching the entire hunger game series, which I was a big fan of when they were first released in theaters. And I have not watched them again, back to back all the way through. So 
I really enjoyed watching those. And it's got me thinking that I need to watch other series that I have not watched in a long time, like the Harry Potter series or even like Star Wars, which I don't think I've even watched every single Star Wars movie. But yeah, I just we have so many good series that it would be great to like just spend some time going through it completely. I don't think I've ever gone through the Harry Potter series from start to finish. Like, oh, really? Okay. Yeah, I, I've watched them kind of like I've, you know, obviously you don't have teenage kid, teenage kids. So. Yeah. Well, when I was <laughs> so when I, I was a kid, that. they yes. came out. Yeah. So like <laughs> I would watch them as they would come in theaters, but. I've never sat down and revisited them and like watched, you know, one through seven or eight. I don't remember how many there are, but I think I need to do that. Yeah. There's eight total. Having kids does expose you to that opportunity. Yeah. (laughs) And during the pandemic, I mean, last summer, we, (laughs) this is going to sound crazy, but we watched the Marvel movies in order. So like the whole from Iron Man all the way through to uh, Endgame, we watched because my kids had never seen them and they were so into it. Like they thought it was fantastic. And we we wouldn't watch a whole movie a night. We might watch like an hour or an hour and a half. So it kind of, I mean, it took, I mean, the pandemic class is still going on. So we, we, but we did this for like nine months, like three or four times a week. And it was a lot of fun. But- yeah. Can I admit something? Yeah, yeah. I've never seen the Marvel or Marvel movies. Okay. I don't think I've seen any one of them. So I don't really understand what they are. You don't have to feel any shame over that. It's not like it's it's not like it's uh, you know amazing theater that you've you've missed, but they they're just fun action movies based on superheroes. And so if you're kind of, you know, I've got two girls and they're not as big a fan as of Iron Man as they are a Black Widow. I mean, they they do like the girl characters, which is kind of cool because Marvel's got plenty of powerful, strong, accomplished female characters too. And so it's it's kind of a fun thing to do as a as a dad with the kids. Okay. So maybe I need to start by watching those since they'll be new to me. But the Harry Potter movies I just haven't seen in so long. So that would be really fun to to revisit. I'll just start making a list of different series. I have heard that the audiobook version of Harry Potter is fantastic. Really? Yes. And and I'm one who I, I didn't read them at all. And my wife was reading them and she was very into them. And, and I didn't read them at all until uh, the sixth movie or fifth or sixth movie came out. Anyway, when I started to read them, all the books were out. And so I read them one through seven sequentially in about a month. And it's funny because the first book is a fraction of the length of the last book. And they took about the same number of days for me because by the time I got to the last book, I could not, I think I took a day off of work and just read it because I could not live without knowing how this whole thing ended because it was so good. The movies, uh, you've, have you, you've read the books? Yes. I've never read the books. No, I think I I may have read parts of the first one when I I was so young when people were reading them and when the first one came out. I'm going to age myself, but I think I was like eight years old. So, so I I love the Lord of the Rings movies and the books, and they they mean a lot to me. But I never had the experience with them that I had with the Harry Potter books, and and 
Harry Potter started out to me as like, well, this is a cute kids thing, like whatever. And my wife kept dragging me to the movies. And by the time we got to the third movie, I'm like, that was pretty good. And then the fourth movie, I'm like, wow, this is great. And then the fifth movie, I'm like, oh my gosh, I got to know what happens. <laughs> um, and so I start reading the books. And Abby, I would say that the fifth, sixth, and seventh books in Harry Potter are like three of the best fiction books I've ever read, ever. Really? Yeah. Uh, by, so, by, so maybe I need to revisit the books and then revisit the movies. But, you know, the, the books are always better than the movies. So hopefully that's not the case here. It, it's interesting because I feel like the movies were faithful to the books in the sense that they didn't they didn't shortchange them or really bastardize them in any way. I mean, J.K. Rowling was involved in it, and I think they're, they're authentic. But th there's just so much depth in the book that can't be, you know, that to me, I'm mentally filling in as I'm watching the movie. And I, I really have a hard time grasping how you would perceive the movies not having that backdrop to fill it in. So, yeah. It's hard It's hard to know what you're missing. Read you know, the books. It, maybe I should read the books. J.K. Rowling, because I've read her, um, she's written another series now about a detective named Cormoran Strike, and I can't remember what the series is called, but she writes it under a pseudonym, uh, uh, and, and they're very good. Like she, her, she is just a great writer. But the Harry Potter books, the genius of them is how the threads of the story connect over these multiple books in this way that is just so deep and novel. Her mind is so fascinating and her writing, you, you can see how it matures from book to book. But really, by the time you get to the sixth and seventh book, it is so, the writing is so compelling, and the story is so good, and the characters are so rich and deep. I, I, I literally, the seventh one, I just took off from work. Like, I could not not finish it. <laughs> well, hopefully, um, that's an acceptable excuse for me. I'll take off work and read Harry Potter books. Yeah, you've convinced me. I'll do that, because I, I haven't read a lot of fiction in like the past 10 years. I feel like all I read is like reference books, nonfiction. Um, so yeah, I, I should read a little bit of fiction. Harry Potter is a good place to go. Do it. Yeah. You won't regret it. The, the, the end of Harry Potter in the movie was nice. The end of Harry Potter in the book is so deeply, deeply satisfying. Perfect. Yeah. Well, then I, then I will do that. The, the movie's like eating a, a fast food pizza and the book is like a full Italian meal. <laughs> You're stuck in Italy still, I see. <laughs> uh, all right. Bye. All right. <laughs> Good to see you, Chuck. Thanks, everyone, for listening to another episode of Upzoned. Keep doing what you can to build a strong town. Thanks, Chuck. Take care. Take care.